When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're talking real money. Welcome to uh, Talking Real Money. Hi, I'm Tom Cock, and today a, a very special edition of the podcast because we're talking to someone that many, many of you know and see on a regular basis, and she's got a new book, which I think is extremely timely. It's called The Great Money Reset. You know her from CBS, of course. You know her from Jill on Money. Jill Schlesinger, thank you for joining us here on Talking Real Money. Well, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be with you. You know, I love your work, have for many, many years. And uh, this book, it, it's it's an interesting time in America, I guess, globally, right? Because people are coming out of the pandemic. Maybe we're heading into a recession. We can talk more about that because you keep track of things, uh, keep track of things like that more than I do. But why write this book? What what was the purpose behind the but and you you talk about this in your book how hard it is to write a book how much time it takes you've got all these other full time endeavors going but you found time to to pen this why why do it first of all I hated writing books always um, I'm I'm like the queen of six hundred words <laughs> that's what I do I'm really good at six hundred word blog posts um, but books are hard so you know essentially. Um, you know, look, I, I've had a weird career. I started as a commodities options trader. Then I became a certified financial planner, investment advisor, and a small business owner. And then I went into the media. So if you think about it, that's more than three decades. I really basically have tried to help people make sense of their financial choices. And I think the big shift for me was that amid the pandemic, probably not so much early, early pandemic, but, you know, sort of the end of 2020, then into 21, I got a lot of people getting in touch with me and they weren't asking about the right allocation for their retirement accounts. And they weren't asking me about the the beauty of a 529 plan. They were really asking, is this how I want to live? And I would talk through their transitions with, you know, sort of an on-the-fly framework to maybe help them figure out how to get where they wanted to go. And that kind of, those stories morphed into the Great Money Reset, which, you know, the thesis is sort of that you can build a more uh, financially resilient life and maximize opportunities to you down the road by taking responsibility right now. And um, what I think is that, when I think about the great money reset, it's not really about money. It's about rethinking your life. And money is this vehicle, which gives us a tangible means of approaching and understanding a lot of our intangible feelings of maybe um, anxiety, maybe unhappiness. But, you know, we really have to think about the money to get us to the next place. I love that. And here, now someone has been a financial planner, investment manager for someone to write this. Uh, if the pandemic taught me anything, and this is from your book, it's to value the present more than I once did and the future a bit less. That does not sound like a financial planner to me. 
I know it's more like a trader. I do have both sides <laughs> of it, you know. Um, well, listen, I, I'm going to give you like the real life embodiment of that, which you get half of the story in the book, but you don't know the other half. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. You know, oftentimes people, when they go through very um, frightening times that you, it, it forces you to reevaluate, right? So as financial planners, you know, we don't sit around and say, think about having fun today because life could end tomorrow. We sort of flip that on its head. We say, think about the long term so that you have plenty of opportunities and be willing to forego a little bit of something today in the present. So you know how the book opens with, um, you know, I talk a little bit about my own reset where my friend Maureen says to me, oh, you need a pink binder. Do you remember that part of the book? Absolutely. Just, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yep, valuable. I, uh, so you know, a, a pink binder is just an organizing way to consider different aspects of what a reset will mean. And, you know, I talk about Maureen and how she was a big planner and she always used a pink notebook to think about the big plan. So, you know, the book is finishing up. And um, last summer, you know, I sort of get the final draft and I'm doing, she's in the acknowledgements. And a month after we're sort of ready to hand in the final submission, Maureen is diagnosed with a terminal cancer and dies four months later. This is one of my inner circle best friends. And what's, I think that like, it's so strange for me to be talking about this book and not having Maureen here, a healthy 60 year old woman just six months ago only upside having a great life. And there is this aspect of this idea that you have to live how you want to live today, not because, oh, you never know when you're going to get a terminal diagnosis, but that you owe it to yourself to at least think about, is this actually the path I want to be on? Because something could upend my path. Something could change. And would I actually feel... Um, like I had lived a great life. You know, one of the things that Maureen said while she was sick is, she, you know, I'm so lucky. I said, how can you say you're so lucky? You're 60 years old and, you know, you're not going to make it to 61. And she said, because I have had an unbelievable career. I've had an unbelievable love life. I've had an unbelievable family. I have great friends. Like I don't, I left nothing on the field. And I think that's a kind of a cool way to think about your life, which is she was a real planner but she kept doing the things she wanted to do. I think that's everybody wants to live that way, right? It's a fascinating thing I love, really like about the book was, first of all, it's very readable. I think anybody could read this book, get through it. You don't have to be somebody who's been in the business. Number two, I love the all the personal stories, just like the one you just shared right now, which I think are valuable. But the part I really liked the most was the inspiration. It felt like it was like, Tony Robbins meeting Michael Kitsis or something. I mean, it's like, you got I mean, wait a minute. Hold on a second. That I just have to process that for a second since I know both of them. That's exactly. very odd. Yeah. Um, no, I, but, that's how but, I felt I, you, when I read it. Yeah. You know, I always have thought, um, you know, it's hard to place me in a category when people will say to me, oh, you're like so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah, but not that so-and-so. So I think one of the big I don't feel like I am a self-help person per se. I think I'm a very therapized, you know, Upper West Side lesbian Jew, which is just like, you know, everyone I could walk out in my neighborhood, there's a hundred of me on the street, but they're not common across the country necessarily. Sure. But I do think that 
Um, I think there's a big difference between someone who's been in the business and someone who's not been in the business. So that's number one. So there's a lot of people giving financial advice who don't come of financial services. And so um, I, I worked with a lot of those people. When I first started at CBS, we launched a website called Money Watch, and there were a lot of personal finance journalists that I would meet, and they would they were sort of evangelical in a way. They were very black and white. This is the way to do it. This is not the way to do it. And I would say to them, this is not how it would happen in real life. You're sitting in front of a client, and you're making a choice that's best for that client. And it cannot be black and white because people have different they're like basically have different reactions. Some are going to do what you tell them to do. Some are not. And so I think that um, the aspirational part of this is my hope, not that everyone goes out and gets rich because I can care less about that. And my hope is that people feel like there's an element of control over their lives. And, um, you know, with a big caveat, and that is that, you know, you have to have enough money to be able to actually have that thought. Because if you're living paycheck to paycheck for real, then you might not be able to do this. But I think that for most people who have a good, you know, let's say a decent paying job, have a few bucks. Um, I believe that you can do this. I think that oftentimes we put ourselves in a box, right? We say either I can like have this horrible, crappy corporate job for the rest of my life, or I can go off and, you know, be a, a photographer. And maybe there's something in between. And that's what I think the reset process is about, is about helping you frame what your choices are. And then you can make better and more informed decisions. That's really the essence of this. So, um, and Kitsis is way smarter than I am. So I'm not going <laughs> to even touch that. I'm not touching that. No way. Well, he's way different. That's for sure. The book is The Great Money Reset. We're talking with Jill Schlesinger here on Talking Real Money. Let's ask a couple specific things because you do point out correctly that, and I feel this as a practitioner, that the toughest part oftentimes, we can give people a portfolio, we can give you a plan, but the toughest part is staying on the rails there. And a big part of that is kind of the spending portion, right? Figuring out how maybe I got to spend a little less money today so that I can live this reset in the future. Can you give us a couple of examples of people that you've talked to and you've helped them sort of reduce the spending side of the equation? One of the most interesting calls that we got on our podcast was um, a guy who changed his name. I worked with him actually, and we changed his name and we changed some of his circumstances. And he said, I have to come on the air and talk to you. And it was a very I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm talking about people and their wealth and their net worth, and, you know, sometimes this really does turn into something kind of horrible because people hear something like, oh, I have all this money and I can't figure out my life. But um, what I can say is that this couple called in and they had about $100,000, $110,000 of credit card debt. And they basically came, wanted to come on the air and say, you know, we have to, maybe we're going to blow out part of our retirement account to pay off this debt. And I'm like, I don't understand. How did you rack up this debt? It's impossible to imagine. These are $300,000 couple yeah. earning, you know, they're, they're, you know, I, I always joke about this. I say, these are like the working rich. They're working really hard, but they can't quite figure out like how to get ahead. So when we talked about the consumption part, what was interesting to me is their, their real consumptive blow was that they had chosen to send their kids to private school and it has blown up their entire financial lives. 
completely. It is a terrible decision. They're stuck in that decision to some extent because once your kids get a lot, I don't have, um, I, I don't have two legged children. I only have furry four legged children. <laughs> a little cheaper, but not exactly. a lot sometimes. Yeah. But, but what I think is important is that I had said to them, well, I don't understand how'd you get in the debt. But then you, all of a sudden you're like, you make $320,000 a year. You take out the taxes, you figure this out. And now you're saying three private school educations, but not just that, but it's the camps that are associated with that kids and their social lives and the tutors and the programs and all of that really did put this family at risk. And when I think about the consumptive choices that we make, I don't think that this couple ever thought that they were, that that was a discretionary choice. They said, we are sending our kids to private school, but no, never in their lives did they think, how will this impact our family's finances? And for me to have to say to them, when you're looking at this, you know, we have to really look at what you're spending. They hadn't even done that. They had not, they called in and said, we're in all this debt. I said, well, why? Oh, I don't know. We spend more than we make, I guess. I guess. Yeah. And the problem when you think about the consumption part of of your life, one of the things that I think is hard is that um, people really confuse a discretionary and a non-discretionary item. And once you get into the world of discretionary and we talk about, hey, what is the, what is really like, what's my real need and what's my want? Well, guess what? We got a big lesson in that because three or four years ago in 2019, you had an idea of what your spending was in 2020. When the world stopped, you had a different idea of what your spending really was. Right. And I'm not saying you have to live like we're in, you know, April of 2020, but What's instructive is to go back to that period and say, what was I not spending money on? How did I actually get all this money built up in my savings account? And what am I going to choose to add back? Maybe there are parts of my pre-pandemic spending that I don't need to add back. And I think, you know, on the sa- in the same vein, when you're planning for a reset, I'm very careful when I talk to people and they say, well, I don't think I'll spend as much money when I'm doing this. I'm like, eh, I wouldn't be so sure because I think spending habits are really hard to change. I agree. I, I, one of the things I liked about the book. Okay. But another one in, in the book that I found very interesting that uh, you talked about the old Jill and the new Jill, and that was investing in things like SPACs, NFTs, crypto. Now you say it's okay to throw 5% of your money at that. Tell us more yeah, about that. Change. I don't know. Let, let me no. ask you something. Do you no. want to spend, I, if you want to spend 5% on gambling every year and it doesn't change your life, I don't really care. I don't think it's the smartest decision, <laughs> but you know, I also don't think that uh, I don't, again, I don't want to turn into a curmudgeon old fart which I resemble on television oh, hardly. Um, when, um, you know, when we talk about investments, because yeah. you know what, sometimes you can have a little bit of fun money. It's okay. It really is. Because as long as you don't put anything, I think of it more as like, it's an activity. So as long as you're not putting your, your financial future at risk, sure, go crazy, you know, and, and know that if you go to zero, it's not going to harm you. And, you know, there are some great stories where people are able to participate and get out and have some fun and get, you know, I never owned any crypto. 
I started covering crypto. Listen to this. My first Bitcoin story was when it traded above a thousand. So that's how long I've been. And and I've never owned it because I never quite got it. And I was kind of a like, I was kind of like a finger wagging, like, this is crazy. You're, you don't know what this is. Um, (laughs) Which it was in the beginning. It was. Uh, I still don't quite get the case for crypto, but I get the idea of like friends of mine who are real tech people who like the idea of investing in new ideas. I get that too. I mean, these are people who were investing in solar panels before anyone ever actually was thinking about climate change. So I don't want to be a a buzzkill, but I also want to be very clear that, you know, you can open yourself up to some of this but never put yourself at risk for the real money in your life. I think that's a good way to put it. Another one you, I think we're in complete agreement on is around real estate. Now uh, the coast I live on and the coast you live on prices go up, up, up much faster than they do kind of in the rest of the country. And people get this notion that, well, buying a house or flipping home is going to make me rich. Mm. I mean, are you kind of on the lifestyle? We, we kind of tell people it should be your lifestyle decision. This is where you want to live and why you want to live there rather than I think I'm going to put 10% or 20% down on this and I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's great that sort of feel the same way about like rental properties. Like if you can make a go at this and you're going to actually make this a part of your, maybe it's your side hustle, you know, maybe it's a way for you to really figure out how to get a little bit of like, uh, some passive income and you know what you're doing and you do your homework and you do your research fine. But you know, for most mortals getting a call at, you know, 12 o'clock at night that there's a leak that is not something you want to do. And, you know, I think there are some people who are constitutionally um, kind of um, in their DNA are, are happy to do this. That's, it is sort of their side hustle. It's their second job. But for most of us, it's like, well, you buy a house if it makes sense, you rent when it makes sense. And I'm a huge fan of renting, you know, that's the, and I own two places. So I, you know, so I, I I love the idea of renting because I understand the freedom it gives you. I understand that there's a flexibility. I think that, you know, when I think about my 83 year old mother who owned a home for her whole life after my father died, Someone knocked on her door, a builder knocked on her door and said, I want to buy your house for cash. And she's like, where am I going to go? I said, you're not moving in with me. Let me start there. (laughs) Um, Let me show you many places. But, you know, for her, it was very interesting because she was sort of of the mindset, like you can't rent, like renting is the sucker bet. And so my sister and I really encouraged her to, especially because, you know, my father had just died a year earlier. She didn't really know what was going to happen next. So we encouraged her to rent. And don't you know, 10 years later, she's like the happiest renter in the world because she said there is something really wonderful about turning the key and not worrying about anything that there's someone else to actually call. And so there are times, and by the way, she has all the money from the house. So It's kind of also nice as people get older and even as you think about retirement, like one of my favorite, I'll I'll give you some of my favorite words. Are you ready? Yeah. Benign is actually my absolute favorite word. Mm -hmm. Um, And liquidity. Yeah. I like having access to my money. And when you think about some of the horror stories about retirement, oftentimes it's the people, it's not that they don't have a lot of money. They have money. It's sort of like in weird ways 
it, the problem is that sometimes it's the people don't realize it. Well, I have $2 million in a 401k. Okay. But you don't have $2 million because you haven't paid tax on it yet. Exactly. Yeah. So first, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And so there's that. And you know, that there are people who think, oh, I just because you have access to a retirement account. Yes, it's liquid, but you haven't paid that, that freight yet. And you know, every time you pull money out of that account, you have the possibility of pushing yourself into a different tax bracket or screwing up your Medicare calculation. You know, all these things play a role. And, um, you know, so I think that real estate is one of those funny things where people are excited about and being in their forever homes. I couldn't, I never think like that. Um, but I think that, you know, your wants and your needs are important and that you should Take that into consideration, but also don't necessarily sit on top of a house if it actually holds the key for you to do something different and to actually, that may even allow you to reset your life in a different way. Liquidity, I think, is everything in retirement too. So you got a couple minutes for a couple of like planning kind of questions? Just do it. Okay. Because here's the thing. I was walking down the halls of the office yesterday and um, telling people I was going to be interviewing you today. And I've interviewed everybody from Magic Johnson to et cetera, everybody in the financial. And so I said, I'm talking to Jill Schlesinger. You are highly revered among financial planners, especially the the women are like, wow, that is huge. And and normally the young people rolled their eyes when I tell them who I'm interviewing. But they said, ask a couple couple, couple questions. Number one. Hold on a second. Let me just say one thing. Yeah. I may be the only CFP who can also go to her left because I did play <laughs> basketball. Okay, oh, there you go. I love that. It's a great quote. Right. I'll steal that one. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of quick, Secure Act 2.0, big deal or not a big deal? Interesting. Yeah, I think big deal. I mean, RMDs going to 75? I find it amazing. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff tucked in there that's kind of interesting. I think that, you know, the idea of sort of getting a, a the ability to get more people investing in retirement is great. But I really think um, some of the memorialization of some of the rules, the fact that uh, backdoor Roths are still legal yeah, and so wow. are, so are yeah. mega backdoor Roths, it's shocking to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to keep taking advantage of it, but sure. that is a huge giveaway. Um, so I like it. Uh, it it also just I you know I'm so I'm in my late fifties and so it was funny I was thinking about this just for myself as I was walking the dogs this morning I was thinking you know I do have a lot of money in pre tax um, assets and I thought to myself eh hopefully I'll be able to do QCDs when I'm seventy and a half and I'll start yeah. pulling money out so it's a fascinating thing to consider that like the my chapter on the IRS I think has for people like you and me it's like the fun nerd chapter. Um, and there are a lot of things in secure act 2.0 that I think are very positive for people who are doing their planning, but you have to do the planning. Otherwise you're going to miss the, you're going to miss the opportunities. Last year, everybody and his brother wrote an article about how the portfolio 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds is dead, dead or alive. 60, 40. I don't know. I'm bored. Um, uh, 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 I, you know, I hate, I loved, I used to think that I was really a very smart investor and now I realize I'm just a, a, a schnook like everyone else. Um, I, I don't know, like I don't pronounce anything dead. I, they, you know, I'll never forget when it was the technology boom. My dad was a trader on the floor of the American stock exchange. He was a stock options trader and a stock trader. He was a, a specialist. And I remember when I was trying to explain to him how this technology boom was going to be different. And he looked at me and he goes, honey, I'm going to tell you something. I've never seen a company that loses money every year 
end up being a successful investment. And uh, so he was right and he was wrong. He mm-hmm. was right for the vast majority, but just think about it. That is what the Amazon game plan was. They lost money, lost money, lost money until they stumbled onto something and they made money. And so um, what I would say is that there are rules of thumb about diversification and allocation. We will not know for many years in the future, whether or not 60-40 is dead. Anything is dead in the moment. Any schnook can beat an index in a year. Mm -hmm. Very few can beat their index over the course of their lives. And very few people have figured out a way to build long-term wealth by chasing returns. So I don't know. I'm going to stick with it for as long as I can. And, um, you know, I'll do, I'll do the things that I can control. I'll do take advantage of the secure act 2.0. I'll do my tax loss harvesting. I'll make sure that I'm using my quality qualified charitable distribution for my mom's retirement account. Like I'll do those things because the investment stuff will work itself out. I promise you. And, and you'll keep your cost low because you mentioned index funds. One final question, because you've been a trader you were a practicing CFP. I think you still are practicing for the world. But um, biggest change you've seen in 20, 25 years? Mm, that's a good question. Well, I mean, there are sort of like big sort of in- industry-wide changes. So the death of commission, which is like the best change ever, right? So that's, you know, essentially the the index fund world. Right. So we we have that. Um, I mean, look, the cost of investing is zero now. Isn't that shocking? Yeah. That's the shocking thing. When when you first started in the business, someone would sell a mutual fund and collect eight and a quarter percent commission <laughs> and then trails. By the way, all those people really <laughs> thought they were smart. They were not smart. They were lucky. Um, so they were lucky to be in a business that where the pricing structure was still very much in the favor of the advisor, not the client. So I think um, the biggest change is cost of, of investing is zero. And the second biggest change may be that um, people really recognize there is no wizard behind the curtain. That I think that most people, despite the banging the drum of CNBC or Bloomberg are talking about an individual security. I think that most rational people understand nobody really has the keys to the kingdom. Nobody really knows where markets are going. So therefore, work with an advisor or work yourself and work, you know, and do and and control the things you can control, do your planning and that's where you're going to have the best long-term outcomes, not by trying to figure out what is the next hottest thing. Change your work, change your wealth, change your life. Uh, and by the way, I did not mention your podcast, which I, I've listened to a lot more the last few weeks, which I love, Jill on Money, I, as, a, as a planner too. I think it's fascinating. The Great Money Reset is the book. Jill Schlesinger is the author. Highly recommend it. Great read. And I think the other part I like is it's fun. You, you make it light. To, to, you got your, your, your sense of humor is in there, which I think is terrific. And so thank you, Jill, very much for joining us here on Talking Real Money. Well, thanks for having me and uh, have a great weekend because I'm talking to you on a Friday. I appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us here on Talking Real Money. 
hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now?